Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Juliana Barbasa, is a journalist and author of the new book, Dancing with the Devil in the City of God, Rio de Janeiro on the Brink. We have a great conversation about the current political upheaval in Brazil, how preparations for the 2016 Summer Olympics are changing the character of Rio, and why corruption in Brazil's political system is seemingly so endemic. Juliana had something of a nomadic upbringing. She is Brazilian, but spent much of her childhood overseas in the Middle East and in Texas, where she developed a bug for journalism. We discuss her life and career, including her time covering key immigration debates in the USA in the 1990s and 2000s, and we discuss in depth her writing of this interesting new book about Rio. Quick note before we start, thanks to all who are writing reviews on iTunes. It's much appreciated. And please do go check out globaldispatchespodcast.com, where you can find an archive of my interviews with really interesting people somehow involved in world affairs. Now, here is my conversation with Juliana Barbasa. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Brazil is a very unpredictable place. No one predicted the big protests that we had back in 2013. You know, no academic or journalist or expert had any inkling that they were coming. And they were huge. They're the biggest protests in a generation. And what were those protests um, about? Those, well... They were the, I think, the beginning of, of this unrest that, that is continuing to this day. Um, there, you know, people going to the streets, basically with what I saw as middle class demands um, for less corruption, more transparency in government, better governance in general, um, more responsive spending of tax dollars, not dollars because, you know, it's Brazil, but, um, you know, spending of tax money in projects that actually benefit the population that's paying those very high taxes um, instead of on stadiums, you know, because this being 2013, you know, the World Cup was just around the corner. And then obviously the Olympics, you know, 2016. So there was a lot of there are a lot of things that people were talking about. But the essence of it for me was, you know, Brazil has become more stable politically and economically more stable. And the there has been a decrease in inequality over the past, you know, 15, 20 years or so. And a big swath of the population has been hearing that they're now middle class. And it, it was as if the, those people all of a sudden said, OK, fine, you know, we're middle class. So, you know, we want all of those other things that middle class people have that are beyond um, just being able to buy a smartphone, you know, that include things like, um, 
you know, sanitation and better schools and a government that is more responsive to my needs. And so, you know, I bring all this up because, again, nobody expected these protests. Brazil was still doing relatively well economically at that point. Um, and now, you know, we've got the, this, this ongoing series of protests. Now we've got the the higher socioeconomic classes taking to the streets, again, really unexpected. You've got the wealthiest um, people in Brazil, people who are not Dilma Rousseff voters, um, you know, going out and raising their banners and chanting. It's And so much is going on in terms of the country's economy, which is really rocky right now. You know, we're going through a contraction. Mm -hmm. And in terms of this big and unfolding corruption scandal that involves politicians. So what um, is, the, so, so my understanding is, is, is the current protests against Dilma Rousseff. And I, I just saw, we're, we're speaking in August, 2015. And I just saw, mm-hmm. um, that her approval numbers are like in the low single digits. Abysmal, uh, yeah. Um, what is this corruption scandal? And I mean, how, and how serious is, is it to her, you know, hold on power? Well, um, and, and this is why I say it's it's very hard to predict whether she'll be able to survive it, because it does look very, very serious, but it depends on what evidence comes forth, right? Um, one of the big problems with the protests that we've been having recently and all of these people who are calling for her impeachment, for her removal, is that we don't yet have any evidence against her. Um, this corruption uh, investigation which is in its 10th phase right now, started with money laundering, um, expanded into the state-controlled oil company and into um, allegations. Uh, and now there's a lot of evidence to back those allegations that um, the, basically the, 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 the state-controlled oil company was giving contracts to big construction companies um, and those construction companies were giving kickbacks to the politicians who placed those executives within the oil company. So you see, it's a it's a and huge are those construction companies round. like building infrastructure for the Olympics? Exactly. Uh, These are the huge construction companies that get just about any major infrastructure project in Brazil. Um, you know, I, I've said this before, but you know. Brazil has a, a construction industrial complex, um, like you know the U.S. is a military industrial complex. So uh, these companies are very, very powerful, and they do everything from you know a big dam to uh, roadways to the Olympic venues. And so the same companies that are involved in the scandal involving the oil company and the government are also um, the companies that hold billions of dollars worth of contracts to build those Olympic venues. And so it's a, a like I was saying, it's a big merry-go-round and involves the most powerful people in the country, including the, you know, many of the people closest to the current president um, and the former president. And just one more little little thing that ties her directly to the to the scandal is the fact that she was chairwoman of the board of this oil company um, while the these allegations of corruption were were percolating. Was that Petrobras? So, Petrobras, yeah. yes. Um, um, so she's very close to it. Um, we, like I said, we just don't have evidence against her yet, but you know, 
there is there is a, a good chance that something might come up that, that might implicate her directly. So I guess was the decision of FIFA and of the International Olympic Committee to hold these major events in Brazil sort of like an invitation to this kind of corruption and this kind of scandal? I, I will say yes, and I don't say this lightly. Again, as a journalist, you know, you're, you're used to really only saying what the facts can back up. And we don't have evidence directly connecting those yet. But, you know, the the same politicians that were involved in bringing in, in, in you know, enticing um, FIFA and then the IOC to come to Brazil um, are people who get campaign money from these big construction companies. Um, and they go from the municipal level to the state level to the federal level. And, and so, yes, you know, there are ties and these ties are complicated and many of them are not above board. They're, you know, they're, they're not, they're not um, obvious, but they're being made obvious now by this, this tremendous um, ongoing investigation that is really unlike anything Brazil has ever seen before. Um, not the corruption itself, that's been there, but this ongoing and serious investigation that seems to be continuing without uh, political or um, without in- interference from politically well, that's or probably a, a, a good sign of like an independent um, you know prosecutor is a sign of like a healthy and vibrant liberal democracy, right? It is, it is, and that's the strange thing that you know. Again, as a as a Brazilian, I, I I hold on to this is a very dark time for the country, and it's a very dark time for for Rio um, because of this instability, you know, economic and, and political that comes from all this. But there is this sign of of real independence from the the judiciary, you know, the both the federal police and the the judge in Brazil. Judges have a lot of independence to shape. Um, and direct the the scope of an investigation. Um, the judge at the head of this is is really doing a fantastic job. And again, this is unheard of. And I think it's a very very important sign, along with the protests. Um, you know, along with the fact that the people are speaking and making their their dissatisfaction known. I think those are very good signs for Brazil. Strangely speaking, in this very difficult moment. Um- so I've only been to Rio once. I was there in, I guess it was 2012 for the big sustainable development conference, the Rio Plus 20 conference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people were saying that that was sort of like a dry run for uh, the World Cup, uh, just in the sense you have all these foreigners coming in for this one event. And the World Cup, in a sense, is a dry run for the, uh, or a live run for mm-hmm. the the Olympics. Um, it seemed, at least, you know, from, from where I'm sitting, that... The World Cup, you know, went off pretty well. I mean, people seemed, you know, despite the uh, horrendous final game for Brazil, um, <laughs> that, you know, at least from afar, it seemed to work. Um, what is the, the feeling on the ground or the expectation of whether or not uh, Rio is ready for the Olympics, which is, you know, just like less than a year away? Well... You know, the question is not whether it will be ready, but at what cost will this readiness come? Again, if you if you look back at the not just the World Cup, which was in 2014, but the Pan American Games, which were in 2007, which were another sort of step in the direction of, you know, this, you know, hosting bigger and bigger um, mega events. Those games were pulled off 
to international satisfaction. Anybody watching them on TV, tourists coming to Rio to, to participate, um, would have had a great time. And it looked beautiful. You know, Rio's very scenic. But again, you know, let's look at the Pan American Games. Uh, nearly 10 times over budget. Left massive infrastructure that was expensive to maintain and had no use for the population. In fact, even things like the velodrome that people thought could be used again in the Olympics, um, it, it was not up to standard and had to be raised and rebuilt. And uh, the security situation for the Pan American Games, um, there was a massive police crackdown right before the Games. Um, 19 people killed by the police in one incursion in a favela that's near the, the roadway that leads to the airport. Um, and so the games were very, very safe. The city was totally secure. Um, the games went off to great international uh, effect. You know, people, people liked what they saw. But what, did, what legacy did they leave for the population? What was the cost? And I'd argue that that cost was tremendous. And it's the same thing with the, the World Cup. You know, if you watch it on TV or if you were there for the party, I was there. It was a lot of fun. You know, there's nothing quite like, um, you know, standing in the beach, watching these games on a huge outdoor screen. You know, if you're during a um, intermission, you can wade into the ocean. You can buy a beer from the vendor that's sitting right there. There's nothing like a party in, in Rio generally. But again, we've got massive um, stadia in cities that don't even have a third division soccer team to fill them, you know. Um, and that's, uh, uh, I, I'm giving all these examples just to say, I feel like that's what we're going to get with the Olympics as well. A great party that's going to come at a tremendous immediate cost and long-term cost for the city. Um, now, you were born in Rio, is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, how I'd love to to talk about your your early childhood experiences and and but through through the prism of Rio, like how has the Olympics and all these major events changed the character of the city, or has it in any fundamental way from you know when you were a kid? Well, Rio and Brazil have changed a lot since I was a child. Um, I, I was born in Brazil. I left when I was three and went to the Middle East and then came back in the mid-80s. And I spent um, these very crucial years for Brazil there. Um, the mid-80s was when Brazil was transitioning from a military regime to a democracy. So there was, there was tremendous instability there. You know, the first civilian president to take office died on the operating table right before he took office. And so what was supposed to be this beautiful moment was a moment of mourning and uncertainty. Um, the economy was total shambles. Um, hyperinflation of, I think the, the worst year was something like 2000% inflation a year. It's hard to even explain what that's like. I mean, you're literally walking through the supermarket and the, the guy with the, the, the little gun, you know, that remarks the prices is, is moving and you're trying to get a, ahead of him to grab whatever, a bunch of bananas before they get more expensive. Um, so, you know, the, the country and the city that I knew at that time were uh, just a, a mess. Um, Rio itself, the city of Rio was uh, very, very unsafe. Um, you know, that's when cocaine had come to Rio and the, the, the gangs that deal drugs um, had really taken over, had really begun their control of favela communities and were expanding with a lot of um, 
conflicts over territory, which meant a lot of shootouts and a lot of stray bullets, which was the name that was given to, you know, uh, firing um, bullets that basically hit innocent people that just happened to be walking by. So, I mean, Rio at the time was uh, uh, just a bloody mess, really. Uh, and and heartbreaking in every way. You know, Is that from, why from your your uh, parents wanted to to leave? Well, that that's one of the reasons why we eventually left. Another one was just you know my my father's job as a as an oil executive. It's just what we did. Every two three years, we moved to a new country. Um, so and Brazil was you know was one of those. We had been living in Libya, and um, mid eighties we moved back to Brazil. Spent um, four years there. And then moved to Texas, you know, all all around along the around the oil connection. Um, Where did you do high school? Houston. Okay. Yeah. So um, very very random elementary school in Tripoli, Libya. A junior high school in Rio de Janeiro. Um, high school in Houston, Texas. But throughout, you would identify as a Brazilian, right? Like your family is Brazilian. You're you you come from Brazilian stock. Yeah, I, I mean, my entire family is in Brazil, and my only passport is Brazilian. I've never, um, I've never been anything else. And so, you know, when Brazil started to do better, I mean, you were asking me, you know, what what the city and and the country were like um, when I went back, and it was engaged in in hosting this series of, of mega events. Um, it was an entirely different place from the one I'd known uh, when when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. Um, the you know the economy was booming when I landed in 2010, right after Rio was chosen to host the the Olympics. Um, again, Brazil was making headlines for totally for reasons that were diametrically opposite um, what it had been known for before. Um, you know, inequality was falling, uh, inequality that had been such a marker of of Rio and Brazil. Um, you know, this middle class was expanding. Um, there was this new uh, uh, security program that was sending police around uh, the clock, um, basically proximity policing uh, programs into favelas that had been uh, uh, you know, virtually abandoned by the state for a couple of decades. So a lot of these things that had seemed intractable, a lot of these big problems that had seemed intractable were being dealt with. And again, as a Brazilian and as a journalist, I was just really curious. I, I really wanted to see up close what it meant, what uh, what what it would uh, become in the long run. You know, would you credit uh, Lula as being kind of the bridge between like the old Brazil um, that that you're referring to, that was sort of like the Brazil of your childhood, uh, and the sort of more hopeful Brazil that that uh, is perhaps the Brazil of today, or the Brazil. Um, that's known for the big events as opposed as opposed to like the the horrific inequality in, in crime and drugs. Lula is a very complex figure because on the one hand, yes, he he's deeply symbolic of of a, tr- a transition that a, a lot of, was very very important for many Brazilians. You know, he was the first working class president that we had in this country of of deeply entrenched um, social hierarchies. I think people who don't know Brazil or maybe, you know, come for vacation can't really see this. But Brazil is a place where if you're born poor, chances are you're going to die poor and your children and your grandchildren are going to die poor. There's not a lot of social mobility. And so to have somebody like Lula um, in power, 
you know, somebody who came from extreme poverty to absolute power um, was revolutionary, really. And he did put in place um, some policies and he continued policies that were put in place by the, the government before him of Fernando Henrique Cardoso, um, FHC as Brazilians know him, um, that were transformational and that became uh, closely associated to, to Lula. Um, the, the main one, I think, that people always think about and, and that was um, imitated in other places that was basically reproduced because it was so successful is a transfer of wealth program. Um, it's called Bolsa Familia, meaning family purse, and it basically gives um, a bit of subsistence money to the poorest people. And it's not enough money to really live comfortably on, but it is the difference between hunger and not hunger. And so those people who are, who are at that extreme level of poverty all of a sudden had something and that something was coming to them directly from the federal government mm -hmm. and so it you know they became associated to lula but lula is also um essentially a, at the very center of two of the biggest corruption scandals that we've had in brazil in recent years um the mensalon scandal which was a couple of years back it was a, a cash for congressional votes um, scheme, you know, basically the mm -hmm. Workers' Party, Lula's Party, was paying congressmen to um, to vote in their favor, um, and now this this ongoing scandal, um, you know, all of, of all of this um, all of these allegations of um, corruption within the oil company and the construction companies happened while the current president, you know, Dilma, also with the Workers' Party, was chairwoman of the board, but happened under Lula's presidency. And it's the president who appoints the chief executives to the oil company because it's a state-controlled oil company. So you see what I'm saying? He, he, he did do some very specific things, and he's held as a symbol of a, of a deep transformation in Brazil. And don't take those away from him. But there was also tremendous expectation that things would be done differently um, in this new Brazil, that business and, and politics would be done differently under him and under the Workers' Party. And that's absolutely not the case. Um, they've been involved in some, in some pretty, sorted, um, pretty sorted affairs, unfortunately. Um, so you were living this you know, nomadic lifestyle, you said before, uh, as, as a child, uh, and you ended up going to high school in Houston. How did you get into journalism? Well, journalism was always a lifeline for me, honestly. Living this, this life, um, jumping from country to country, and feeling always so disconnected from the country that was a ostensibly my own, you know, the, the country named on my passport. Um, journalism, um, you know, newspapers that people would bring to us, you know, magazines that were weeks old that would come in big stacks uh, were my connection to, you know, my country, to Brazil and to the world in general. You know, we lived in places where there was a lot of censorship um, on television and in media generally. And so I, I, I was keenly aware of the role that it plays I was keenly aware of the role that it played in, you know, within Brazil in um, calling for democracy and the, the journalists were an important part of the resistance against the military. And I was keenly aware of the, 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 the role that it plays um, within democracies, you know, having lived in countries that where there was absolute censorship of media and then being able to get media, uh, media um, 
you know, materials from elsewhere. Seeing that difference, I grew up um, sort of living living that contrast um, very keenly and valuing um, journalism. I, I was very surprised actually when I moved to the United States, and for the first time in my life, I lived in a place. I felt where people took for granted the role of a free press. Um, they took for granted having that, and uh, you know, I, I would, you know, I always had journalists sort of as as like little personal heroes, and um, then I I saw this press that you know a lot of people felt was just oh you know entertainment or you know celebrity gossip and well, you know still, the US, still got a yeah, lot of that. <laughs> you do have a lot of that, but um. I just I I had just never been exposed to that. I had never thought of that. Uh, you know what I mean? I hadn't mm-hmm. interacted with that that kind of journalism really until I was in the United States and I was. Um, was it like the OJ trial while you're? Yeah, in high yeah, was exactly. The, the big story, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I was in college by then, and you know, a journalism student, um, and just you know, trying to make sense of this new media environment where journalists weren't just you know the you know, the white knights on the riding in on the horse to, um, you know, save democracy and tell truth to power and, you know, all of these things that I had, uh, I'd grown, you know, these ideals that I'd grown up with. Um, so what but were, obviously, what were some of the big stories that you covered early in your career? Oh, let's see. Early in my career, I talked about, um, I, I, when I was in the U S and I started out as a journalist, I really wanted to cover immigration. And one of the stories that really, um, touched me and, and made a big difference in my life and really validated my, my desire to be a journalist and my sense that this was the, the, the track I wanted to follow was, um, covering the case of very young children, that were coming in from Central America, uh, crossing the, the you know the borders along the way and into the United States, unaccompanied minors basically, and it's it's interesting because this story um, is has gotten a lot of attention again recently. But I was covering this uh, many years ago when you know the big there was a big hurricane called Hurricane Mitch. Um, that destabilized, you know, Honduras and El Salvador killed a lot of people and basically pushed a lot of people who were in fragile situations um, further to the margins. And there was this wave of children um, coming into Texas by themselves, um, kids as young as six or seven years old, and you know, to nine, 10, 14. Um, there, you know, many of them. And the, the stories that they told were, you know, the stories that you'd imagine, just horrifying um, tales of, you know, holding on to the outside of trains, you know, crossing through um, Guatemala, crossing the borders by themselves, you know, crossing uh, the Rio Grande by themselves. Um, and and then being in that position of being, you know, completely undocumented and alone in the United States. Um, you know, as, as somebody who was also from somewhere else, I was also an immigrant in the United States writing these stories about immigration. Um, that one really stayed with me. It's it's interesting because you know now I mean you you reference like a natural disaster that you mm-hmm. know was a trigger to cause the destabilization. Now it's it's just unrelenting violence. Um, you know, mm-hmm. was like a year ago you had you know tens of thousands of these unaccompanied minors pouring over the the border um, on on like a weekly basis. Um, yeah. What I I, I I so like from, how did you I mean I would imagine having having you know covered that story many years ago, you sort of like expected sort of this to repeat itself or probably never even 
never even relented in, in, to a certain degree. Yeah, I don't think it did, honestly. And there's no, the, the situation remains essentially the same. There's no safety net um, in, in the countries of origin of, of these children. And so when you have anything from natural disaster to a big economic shock to um, gang violence, um, you have these kids being pushed out. They're the weakest link. And unfortunately, the situation in the United States hasn't changed either. And that's the the part that really was just uh, so gut wrenching as a as a journalist. I mean, the, these stories. I was I was writing about this in '98 uh, or '99. I forget which year it was. And uh, then you know, I went to graduate school. I went back to writing about um, immigration and. The rhetoric never changed. The situation still hasn't changed. There's still no um, adequate way of dealing with people who come across the border and undocumented, particularly people in very uh, vulnerable positions like minors. Um, And honestly, that's part of the reason why I just, after years of doing this job that was really my dream job, you know, being a journalist covering immigration, um, I, I wanted to leave. I, I just couldn't stand it anymore. I couldn't stand hearing the same pro- problems um, and still having no solution and still hearing the same, um, the, 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 the very negative rhetoric around the issue, unfortunately, also hasn't changed. Um, so so where, very frustrating. Where did, you, where did you escape to? Where did you leave to? Well, to Rio. <laughs> okay, so you went back to Rio. You're like, forget this in, in Texas. Um, well, I, uh, eventually I left Texas and um, I started working for the Associated Press. And after doing a, a number of other covering other issues, I went back to covering immigration, um, but for the AP and uh, on a national level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was back to this topic. And it's, it, it really remains a topic of, of deep fascination for me on a personal level, too, because I've always been um, an immigrant uh, sort of around the world. I've never, you know, very seldom lived um, I'm 40 years old. I lived 30 of my years in countries that were not my own. And so I connect to that situation very much uh, on a personal level. So I, I had gone back to covering immigration and immigrant communities. And, uh, but I just, I, I reached this point of just uh, feeling like I was banging my head against the wall. And then this opportunity to, um, to go right you know, about Rio and Brazil at this moment of great transformation there felt like such a release. I was like, finally, you know, I can talk about change. I can talk about transformation, whether it's good or bad. I'll talk about something that's moving versus a stagnant situation. You know, it's funny. I um, grew up in a town with a pretty large Brazilian immigrant population in Connecticut, Mm -hmm. Danbury, Connecticut, um, for, you know, whatever bizarre, you know, reason of of immigration there was like a really a a pretty vibrant and large brazilian population for a relatively small city for for a small city funny um uh but i i hear what you're saying uh you know about immigration how many years did you spend like on on the immigration beat oh gosh that's what i i I mean for you know i was in texas and then let's see later in california i want to say covering just immigration um maybe four or five years. So a, a good chunk of time. And but did the story, I mean, ever change? I mean, right now it seems, you know, with, with Trump, um, you know, just the other day calling for the um, uh, erasure of birthright citizenship that, oh, gosh. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's insane, but I have to imagine 
that there's going to be a sort of backlash to the backlash politically, that like the political right in the United States at some point is going to come to terms with the fact that the fastest growing electorate uh, are uh, Hispanic Americans and will have to, you know, and, and we'll have to face that fact and, and adjust and adapt accordingly. I I would hope so. I mean, I, I think that it's a reality that's knocking at the Republican Party's door. Um, you don't want to be a, a party of aging white people, essentially, um, for very much longer, simply because there's less and less of them, you know, in the United States, as uh, these other populations grow, and as you know, young people come on and, and have different perspectives. Um, and so I hope that I mean, just like, you know, what happened to um, marriage equality, uh, you know, same-sex marriage, um, the popular opinion eventually pushed, uh, pushed change. Um, it, it led the way for change. And I hope that the same will, will happen on immigration. And, you know, it's not just the, the situation of undocumented immigrants, legal immigration, too. That was another aspect that was really frustrating to me is that, you know, I'd been living in the United States since I was 15 and always, you know, legally, I always had all my papers in order. Um, I was very careful to, to do that, especially covering immigration. And I always had, you know, working visas and one work visa, another work visa. And the company had applied for my um, for a residency for me for a green card essentially, but that application went in in 2007 and it's still percolating. Oh I mean, it's I've now abandoned I abandoned it basically when I got got tired of waiting and and went you know went to Brazil and so I'm back to not having any status in the United States. Um, but the legal immigration situation is very very broken. Um, when you have somebody like me, who I've lived there forever, I've worked there, I've had you know a company vouch that they want to employ me, that they've looked elsewhere, they can't find somebody else, they want me, um, I have graduate degrees, I have a lot more um, resources basically than most people. Mm -hmm. And I just got sick of waiting and, and gave up uh, my own application and was you know the world is too big i don't want to yeah. sit here forever waiting for this when i can you know go off to other things my, 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 i mean my parents are immigrants they they moved from canada uh, not too far <laughs> uh but they're from montreal they're canadian uh and i'm american i was born in in connecticut and um you know it took them like 20 years to to get their citizenship i remember i was like in sixth grade when they got their citizenship they just kind of like felt strongly that we should all be on the same passport um, mm -hmm. yeah, I remember even like the citizenship test they took was a little, was, was really, really messed up. Uh, I remember like them telling me the questions and, and the tests they had to answer were some of them were, you know, straightforward. Others were just so totally bizarre. Um, and, and not questions that like native born Americans, many of them could, could even answer. Yeah. Um, so, so when did you, so, so you had been living in Brazil, just covering Brazil, I guess, for the AP for since the, the mid 2000s, late 2000s? Since, yeah, since 2010. Um, obviously, you know, we talked about many of the stories there. One thing I, I know that you discuss in your book, uh, extensively, um, is, and, and you referenced it earlier in our conversation. I'd love to dig just a little bit deeper is where these criminal gangs, uh, that kind of run the favelas, come from and what their sort of current status is in in Brazil and how you know what else can be done to loosen their hold over favela communities 
Well, where they come from is the favelas themselves, really. I mean, that's in part why they, they control that environment. They're born there and, you know, they're born in this environment of very little opportunity. If you're, a, you know, a young man, a young black man, as is the case in the majority of situations, uh, living in these favelas, you have very few opportunities to, you know, get decent schooling, to get good jobs, et cetera. And, you know, not to excuse it, but to explain it. Um, these gangs are a way of making a fair amount of money with um, very little schooling. And because these communities were essentially, they're, they're within the city, but were the, the city sort of excluded them from services, from um, you know, basic services from sanitation, uh, water, electricity, etc., policing. Um, when these gangs started to, you know, make more money and become more powerful in the mid '80s, you know, with with the advent of cocaine um, and bigger bigger guns and such, um, the these gangs they just they took over this territory um, with no resistance um, from police at all. They they just um, they fought each other for you know for the most um, important, the most lucrative um, terrain, but they, they could just take over um, communities that, I mean, each one of these, like the Complexe du Alemão that I talk about in my, in my book in the beginning, is a community of about 100,000 people. It's right next to another Complexo, the Complexo da Peña, which is another 100,000 people. And so, you know, you've got these um, criminal organizations that were basically allowed to take over unimpeded these what are essentially residential communities, low-income residential communities, where people, you know, have been fending for themselves, um, and so the the situation is is very dire, and not just because of what it means for the city at large, uh, you know, not just because these um, people are allowed to um, stash their weapons, stash their drugs, um, run out, commit crimes, and run back and hide within them, but also for the hundreds of thousands of people who live. Um, under their control. Um, these are people who can't have access to um, justice, can't have access, you can't call the police, you know, um, if you live in these communities. You're, you're, you're under the thumb of the reigning drug lord um, and whatever his, um, you know, he may be better, he may be worse, you're at their mercy. And and how much like, political um, power do they um, hold? And, and in terms of, you know, what can be done, sorry, um, they don't actually hold a lot of political power. There's there some um, sort of there's some vote corralling that happens um, because they they really limit um, incursion of you know political candidates and such. Uh, so if you if you want to come in, if you want to advertise, you you know you've got to pay uh, to these to these drug lords. Um, and and part of the reason why they don't have a lot of political power is because again these are guys from the favela who often have a very um, low low um, education level they don't they can't circulate outside the favela they you know the, the brazil and rio are such that they're immediately recognized they're not um you know they're not people who have access to higher echelons of power but um there is another there are other organizations that are very worrisome and that have grown tremendously in the last um 20 30 years and that play a similar role to these drug dealing gangs, but are less um, well known. And there are the militias. And the militias are made up of um, 
mostly off-duty police officers, um, firemen, uh, people who have, you know, this, these sort of these jobs that are connected to the to the state, but that um, form their own organizations and have now control also whole sections of town, entire favelas, control um, distribution of, say, cooking gas or cable TV there. Um, they make a lot of money doing this. And they are also um, lethal. You know, they're also highly violent. And they do have political power mm. because they can circulate outside of the favelas. They're people with, with um, greater, um, greater access, essentially. And those are very, very worrisome. It's very hard to go after them because they are part of the police apparatus, for example. Uh, and what, what resolution? I mean, how do you see this, this progressing? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I honestly can't say that I have very high expectations for this. And part of that is because, um, you know, I was talking about factions, you know, the drug dealing factions, the militia, the police are really just another faction in Rio. The police are, are very violent. Um, in the, the, the most violent year was 2007 when the police in Rio killed 1,330 people in, in one year just in Rio. Um, last year, I mean, it's gone down, they've gotten a little bit better, but last year they killed around 500 people. Um, the police, you know, that's more than nearly two people a day killed by the police. It's, uh, you know, it's not a force that you can really rely on to really go after, um, criminals, uh, go after criminal organizations. So, um, you, it's, it's very hard to know where a solution may, may come from, um, when you can't trust the police to, to do their job. And in fact, um, I think I saw a little survey come out a little while ago, uh, 64% of Brazilians are afraid of the police, you know, so who's, who's going to change anything? Who's going to make the difference? Um, so we're just about out of time. I did want to ask you, um, one final question, which is about the Olympics and, and the day after the Olympics in Rio, like what do you expect the mood in the city to be like, or do you think the city you know, will have changed in any meaningful way? Well, I mean, the day after the Olympics, honestly, if it's anything like the World Cup, Rio will be experiencing a huge hangover because I'm sure it'll be a huge Literal party. and figurative. Literal <laughs> and figurative, yes. Um, and the city is being changed tremendously. The face of the city is changing. You know, the, there's new roadways being put in, um, big physical infrastructure uh, being constructed, whole favelas. Um, over 120 favelas was, were slated for removal um, before the Olympics. And so there's tremendous change. But I feel like the city that we're going to be left with is going to be a more unequal city. Um, it's a city in which um, again, unfortunately, the people who have traditionally benefited in Brazilian society will have benefited, and the people who have traditionally um, borne the costs will have been asked to bear even more. Um, I'm I'm not looking forward to to living in that Rio, honestly. Um, it's it's not a place that you know that it's not what I would have hoped for. Uh, well, Juliana, thank you so much for your time. This is great. I uh, encourage everyone to check out your book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Juliana. Thank you again for everyone who is writing reviews on iTunes. I really appreciate it. uh, And it helps other people find the podcast. Oh, and a very big thank you to everyone who has bought Daughters of the Red Light, Coming of Age in Mumbai's Brothels by Shinor Sirvai and published by yours truly via my Dawn's Digest social enterprise. We are holding firm at the number one spot on Amazon's rankings for international affairs books. So uh, here we go. We're making an impact. It's just $1.99 or free if you have a Prime account. So check it out. You can find a link on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye.